Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Furthermore, Psalms 2 says that you are the Lord's inheritance. Now some of you might be thinking, that's not much of an inheritance to gain. But it just goes on, goes to show how much the Lord actually values you and how precious you are in the sight of the Lord. And that worth isn't any worth that we have within ourselves. But it is worth that is put upon us, that is given to us, that is credited to us by reason of what God done. By reason of what God done. And so, as much as we know that we are unworthy and undeserving of God's love and his goodness, yet still God chose to grant it to us as a precious gift. Therefore, clarifying just how valuable Each of us are to him. Now as you think about that for a moment, think about the fact that you are valuable, you are precious. Not because of anything you do, and your worth isn't diminished because of the wrong that you do. It really has nothing to do with you. And has everything to do with God's value that he has placed upon you. As you think about that, how does that make you feel? For some of us, instantly, we may feel I'm so unworthy. And it's not even just that I wasn't worth it in the first place, but I'm so unfaithful. Why would the Lord be so good to me? Why would he value me in that way? A multitude of gospel songs have been written. I don't know why Jesus loves me. And we'll spend eternity trying to work that answer out. And yet still, God does love you. He does value you. You are precious. He does care. Now as you reflect on that, consider the fact that the same is true for the person sitting next to you. So, 
You've been thinking about yourself and you've been thinking about the fact that you are valued. But the person sitting next to you is valued by God. What does that say about the way we ought to treat them? In fact, we see in scripture that our neighbors are valued by God. So what does that say about our responsibility to make them aware of that truth and of that fact? Some will hear, some will care, and some won't. But is that the kind of information that we can keep to ourselves? That we ought to keep to ourselves? Wouldn't that be entirely selfish of us? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the fact that you are the unchanging God who is faithful from age to age. That Lord, you have turned your attention that, Lord, you have established a plan and you have set a purpose. For a people to know you in Christ. And, Lord, I'm so thankful that the majority of us here are probably in that place, Lord. You know who exactly is and who exactly isn't. But we're here today in your name, reflecting and considering your goodness towards us. And as we do so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to consider faithfully how we would communicate to others how we can communicate to others, how we should communicate to others your goodness toward men. We recognize that you loved the world and gave your only son, that whosoever believes would not perish, but have eternal life. And you have given us a commission to make that known. So that whosoever will, that they'll come. And so Lord, I pray that you'd stir our hearts and encourage our hearts as we reflect on these truths today. And we consider practically just how you have been at work among us. All that you have achieved among us. And all that you are yet to achieve among us. Have your way, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, just as somewhat of an addendum to our foundation series, um, we've had it on our hearts some time to take a, a week out and really just kind of give a greater insight to Urban Mission, which is the outreach ministry 
um, here at Calvary Chapel, South London. Um, we realize that in many ways it's such that throughout the years that we've existed as a church and been functioning as a church, um, the life and work of Urban Mission um, has seldom been seen or kind of communicated with any degree of clarity in our Sunday meetings. There are many who have been involved. There are many who have um, encountered the work of the ministry at some point or another. And yet we also realize that there are many who haven't. And even those that have are maybe not clear of, as to some of the um, underpinning biblical truths that are foundational to our view on outreach. So, mission. Now, the ministry of the local church, in some ways, can simply be put into two categories. Let me see if I can give you any guesses as to what that might be. Let me just make sure the sound on this isn't too loud. Can you hear that? Yeah. Are any of you familiar with this song? I see one or two, three. I see that hand at the back. Feels like an call in it. See that hand at the back over there. Yeah. As we just bow our head and close our eyes. Does anybody know who sings this song? Who? Dietrich Haddon. Okay. Now this song comes from one of my favorite albums. Um, Brother's got a, a couple of what I would consider really exceptional albums. And if you know the, the, the song title... Rest in Place. All right. And I think you might have already caught a glimpse of the album title. Lost and Found. You know what? I love it when believers know their gospel music. Sometimes we know much more about soaps and everything else. But it comes from the album Lost and Found. All right. Go on. Move me on. Oh, there we go. Lost and found. And in many ways, that really kind of defines the work of the ministry with regards to the local church. The local church ministers to the lost and to the found. Those of us who are found, we were found by Jesus because we were lost. And yet there remain people who are lost yet to be found. Quite simple, really. Now, as far as ministry to the lost is concerned, that could be put into two categories. Any clues as to what that might be? Ministry to the lost, two categories. 
evangelism. So what's the other category then? Uh, I'm, I'm going to try and give you a clue. Uh, you may not be able to see the picture very well. Alf. Who's Alf? Where's Alf from? It's from home and away. Okay then. Home and away. Now I remember coming home from school, watching Home and Away. I guess because there was really nothing better on to watch at the time. But it's one of them kind of soaps that kind of draw you in. And I was quite astonished to hear that. I mean, I don't even know if he's still on the soap. But he, he's, he's still in the soap. That's what I thought. The brother is still in Home and Away. Home and Away. Our mission as a local church... can be categorized as home and away. Now, as far as away missions are concerned, a mission away from home, we've, over the past few years, given attention. We had outreach to Romania. Um, uh, uh, two trips, or was it three? Two trips um, to partner with the church out there doing ministry to gypsies. And... More recently, we've been building and developing the ministry going forward out to Jamaica. And so we'll hear more about that next week. But with regards to our home mission, what does that really look like? Home mission, how is that defined? What kind of activities have been going on? What kind of activities could be going on? What kind of activities should be going on based on what we see on scripture, in scripture? And this is what we want to give some consideration to. And so, we're going to break down five. Five different things. The mission. Now, is that this projector? No, it's not. The mandate, the message, the method, and the manner with regards to our home mission. Now, the first thing I'd do is stress the fact that, you know what? What we're going to consider today is one mission. It's one mission. And hence the, the name of the outreach ministry is urban mission, no S on the end. Because there's only really one mission. It's one mission that we'd all be familiar with. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the mission. To go forth and make disciples. 
Now, in response to that, we at Calvary Chapel South London, even before the years in which the, the church have existed, really have been led and nurtured and groomed of the Lord with what we see as really quite a, um, a focused mandate in many ways. I'll talk more about the history shortly. But the mandate comes from Luke 14, verse 21. Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. Now, this is quite a unique verse in scripture because there aren't many verses in scripture that talk about streets. And that use the term city. If you consider Israel, it was very much a, a rural community. Obviously, Jerusalem was the hot spot. That was the, the place, the city. And yet we see Jesus here in this parable. Speaking and saying, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city. And we recognize that as we grew in the Lord and as we grew in ministry, we recognize that there has been a fundamental necessity to get out into the streets and to get out into the lanes and to get out into the city and make Jesus known. And as we've continued in ministry, we've realized that actually there has, it's not even just it's necessary just as much as it's necessary to go into the fields and the villages. But we've also recognized that there has been over the years somewhat of a, a lack of clarity with regards to the communicating of Christ to the urbanite. Because that's all urban means. People are like, oh, why are you called urban mission? Urban just means city dweller. Urban conurbation is just a built up area. And yet we recognize that the city in which we live and the cities of this na nation have quite distinct characteristics with regards to lifestyles and culture. And so with that in mind, we gave focus to the message because that's the first thing you can do. Give focus to the message. Now we see in Mark 1 verse 15, when Jesus embarked on ministry, Mark, the gospel writer, recording the words of the Apostle Peter, recorded his mandate and that which set the tone to his ministry as being this. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. 
That's in Mark 1.15 if you can't see the um, reference properly. And it's a comprehensive gospel. The gospel of the kingdom wasn't just get saved and go to heaven. It was much more than that. In fact, the Jewish expectation wasn't even that. Their expectation that the Messiah was going to come and bring heaven to earth. And so when they heard this statement, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel, in their mind, they would have been thinking, this is it. This is what we've been longing for. Everything's going to be put right and we're going to be rolling with the king. And we see that attitude in the life of the disciples. And yet we recognize that Jesus was inaugurating the kingdom, although it was yet to be consummated, yet to be completed, yet to be fulfilled, which it will be when he comes again. And yet our message is the same. The kingdom of God is at hand. People are able to become a part of God's kingdom people. Because there is no kingdom without a king. And those who are of the kingdom are those who are submitted to the rule of the king. And the king is Jesus. And so, in terms of the the dynamics of the message, it deals with the past, present and future. So often we get saved and we just have a future view. We're just, well, I'm just going to twiddle my thumbs, mark time, tread water until Jesus comes and then that's it. But no, we are heirs of the kingdom right now. And so, yes, the kingdom purges our past. The gospel is a gospel that begins with forgiveness. It preserves us in the present. We are preserved and kept by the power of God. And it is a promise of prospect for the future. We know that it's not always going to be like this. It's not always going to be yet another political campaign. Yet another Monday morning. Yet another bag of grief to deal with at work. Yet another low bank account at the end of the month. Yet another illness. You know what? There's going to come a time when our trials and our troubles will be over. And you know, one of the things that the Lord's really just impressed on my heart is as believers who know Christ, we must not underestimate or lose sight of our future hope. That Jesus is coming back. He's coming back and it is not going to be long. And he is coming back to rule and reign in righteousness. And we are going to rule and reign with him. Now Luke recorded Jesus' opening gambit. The mandate is this. Taken from Luke 4, and you can turn there if you will. We're just going to look at a few verses. So he, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. 
And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Just a side note, even Jesus went church regularly. <laughs> anyway, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus was quoting from Isaiah 61. And there was something that he missed out. That he intentionally neglected to mention. Because after the part where he said to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. There's another phrase that concludes that part. And in Isaiah it reads. And the day of vengeance of our God. You see the complete gospel message is. Yes one of forgiveness. But it's also one of judgment within our time frame. Jesus in his first coming, John 3.17 says that he didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. That the world through him might be saved. But now, on the other side of the cross, Jesus having received the judgment, the wrath of the Father upon himself, we are now able to proclaim the day of God's vengeance. Because that's what's coming next. There's no more gentle Jesus, meek and mild. It's Jesus on the white horse with eyes of fire and a sword, two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. It's going to be ugly. And so... We're to call people to repent. To repent of sin. To turn from sin. Flee from the judgment which is to come. And if you read the book Pilgrim's Progress. It's a Christian classic. Throughout all ages. It is apparently the best selling Christian book apart from the Bible. So if you haven't read it. As they say, if you don't know, get to know. Please. Christian classic. And you have these characters in there portrayed by John Bunyan, the writer. And they're on a pilgrimage. They're on a journey. And it's not just a matter of where they're going to, but it's what they're running from. Because they're fleeing from the wrath which is to come. 
Now, it's a message that people don't really want to hear. They want to hear life improvement. Self-help. They want to they get rich quick. They want the extreme makeover, as the ladies heard last night. They want everything right now. They want everything good now without any sacrifice, with little commitment on their terms. And that's how we are as people. But that ain't even the, the, the real issue as far as salvation is concerned and becoming an heir of the kingdom. It's not first and foremost about what you're going to get, but it's about what you're not going to get. Come to Christ and you won't get judged. So, repent of sin. Turn from sin and turn to God. Believe in Christ's death and resurrection as being the only way to receive eternal life. Receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus spoke numerous times about the promise of the Holy Spirit. And again, it's a facet of salvation that we can't neglect to preach when it comes to the message of the gospel. Because there are many with a moral mindset that feel, well, all I've got to do is agree that there was a guy called Jesus and then do my best to be a good person. No one can live the Christian life. I can't. I know you can't. Man, then we're tested this morning. Setting up. Hard. Trials. Pressure. How did they maintain their Christian character? Because they were good guys? No, because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Empowering our walk. So that when the going gets tough, the tough keep going. Christ is in us by his spirit. And be baptized. Come into the family of God. Again, another one of those facets of the gospel message that is often left out. In some ways, quite rightly, because it's not essential to salvation. But it ought to be the expected byproduct of someone who is saved. And we've talked all about that. You know that. But one of the things it signifies is belonging to the community of God. Coming into identification with and relationship with the people of God. So this is the message. Now... From the verses that I read, Luke 4, Luke 14, there was a term that was repeated in both of those. It was a category of people that were referred to. Any guesses as to what that category might be? Disciples? Well, they were the people being spoken to, but they weren't the people referred to in both of those. Any other suggestions? The poor, who said that? Diane, look, A-class student, praise God. <laughs> thank, thank God for Jesus. <laughs> Amen. She said she wasn't at school, for those who didn't hear it's interesting, and this week we've been doing a study at school just on the Gospels. We're getting the New Testament at the moment, and we're looking at the different themes of the Gospels and so on. 
the different gospel writers had a different particular emphasis. And it's been interesting meditating on Luke's particular emphasis in scripture. You see, we recognize that the the gospel is for all people. But Luke, as he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Lord using his faculty, his experience, his personality, and through that communicating his truth in an inerrant fashion, there's an, there's an emphasis or there's a bias that actually becomes clear in Luke's writing. Because yes, the gospel is for all people, but at least where Luke is concerned, there's a bias. And it needs to be clarified because it can seem to be contradictory. So we look at Matthew who was very much focused on the Old Testament and the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And even Jesus as being the fulfillment of Moses as a type of the Messiah. A prototype. And so in Matthew 5, 3, Matthew says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And yet Luke, declaring... Such words spoken by Christ. He says, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, for some, that seems like a contradiction. If they're supposed to be recording the same event, they're supposed to be inherently inspired by God, why have they written down two different statements? And it gets worse. Because when you look at the previous verses, you see that even the context is different. So some of you may want to flip your Bibles over to Matthew 5 and look at verse 1. And it talks about the fact that Jesus went up. Went up the mountain. Anyone there? Chapter 5, verse 1. Who did he go with? He went with the disciples. All right. Now put your finger in there and flip over to Luke. Luke 6, sorry. And in Luke 6, you will see that Jesus didn't go up. He came down. And he didn't, he wasn't, it doesn't say that he was on the mountain. It says that he was on a level place. And that his disciples came to him. So it's not even just that the two writers have recorded two different statements. But even the context seems different. And yet they're inspired by God. It's, it's inerrant writing. Now, for some, this is enough for them to say, you see? That ain't the word of God. That was written by men. King James. Yeah. That's, that's it. Furthermore, it was Shakespeare in disguise. He was using a pseudonym. I like you, you probably heard a few, I've heard hundreds 
a different arguments against the Bible. And a text like this is one that the haters would like to jump on. Well, there are a few simple explanations as to why it seems different. Well, it is different. It's not even seems different. One of the most commonly held views is that it was two different occasions being recorded. That Jesus, as an itinerant preacher, would have been doing what itinerant preachers do. When a brother's got a good message, he preaches it more than once. Believe me, we know. And so it's such that it's viewed as being two different occasions that are being recorded. Two different locations. Some have even gone on to say one was a sermon on the mount, the other was a sermon on the plain. It's a, it's a simple and yet reasonable explanation. Another explanation is that it was a recording of the same event but with a different intentional emphasis that was God-inspired so as to give a broader and clearer picture of the event. So if you look closely at the details, and we won't go into it now, you will see that they are quite easily able to be harmonized. Because Matthew may have seen Jesus go up the mountain, but Luke saw him come down a few feet to a level place. It's completely reasonable. There are plateaus and level places on mountains. The two statements don't necessarily contradict each other. But actually they provide a wider picture. Matthew is very specific. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Which is really the heart of the matter. You see, it would be unreasonable to think that God would give gospel blessings to anyone simply because of their social class or condition of life. That would be quite unfair and quite biased, right? And so Matthew clarifies the point. Blessed are the poor in spirit. An inward bankruptcy. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, if we are to rise in the kingdom of God, we must sink within ourselves. And so it's that recognition that, you know what, I've got nothing in myself with which I can impress God. I've got nothing in myself with which I can use to earn salvation. There's nothing in me. Help me. I'm bankrupt. I'm broke. Spiritually speaking. And yet, when we look at Luke, he doesn't necessarily contradict it, but he clarifies the point. Because he is actually talking about the poor. And he's talking about poor disciples. Because you notice in verse 20, Jesus lifted up his eyes toward his disciples. So he was speaking to those who are followers. Those who have submitted themselves unto him. So this isn't just the poor in a random sense. In fact, it was recognized that to become a disciple, 
would have been a willingness and a commitment to endure poverty. Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And that was the disciples' plight as they walked with him. But it wasn't just the fact that they were socially poor, but it was the condition of heart, the condition of heart created by that condition of life. The condition of heart created by that condition of life. And Luke, when you look through the gospel of Luke, you will see a theme that runs through that gospel. He had a particular eye for the underprivileged within society. He speaks more about the poor, the needy, women, and other such people who were ostracized or, or um, treated as second-class citizens. He speaks more about them than any of the other gospel writers. Maybe it was because he himself was a Gentile. And knew what it felt like to be on the outside. And sometimes the Lord has us in that place where we kind of feel like we're on the outside. And sometimes we can kind of feel bad about that. We can feel as though we've got the hump. It's not fair. And yet at the same time, one of the things that it does is it puts us in a position where we can empathize with the outsider and minister to the outsider. I had a conversation with someone this week about that very same fact. And so, like Luke, we should be looking to try and turn every opportunity to God's advantage. Use every situation with a kingdom mindset that through it, God can be glorified. So, as we considered Luke 14, 21 as a mandate, we recognize that it's quite applicable to us because Dulwich Village is not a true reflection of what South London is really like. We meet people, and, you know, oh, where do you guys worship? We worship Red Post Hill. Oh, just beside Dulwich Village there. And we're like, yeah. It's like one road that's private. But don't forget, there are like three or four big housing estates that surround Dulwich Village. And people kind of at first look at us a bit, hmm, ministry to the upper classes. How does that work? You can see it on their face, especially those that are unfamiliar with the territory. But we recognize that there's a lot of deprivation in the areas in which we live, the areas in which we work. London has the highest rate of teenage pregnancy. London has the second highest, um, the borough with the second highest ranking on the deprivation index. So there's only one other borough, which I think is in Manchester. And then it's like London, three, four, five, six. So we live in 
many ways in a deprived area. And it's something that we're sensitive to because many people who are from a deprived area, recognizing their need, recognizing that they have a need greater than themselves, very often are found to have an open heart with regards to the message of the gospel. Because it, it's a gospel that speaks of help that comes from God. Help that isn't just temporary, but it's eternal and it's lasting. Help that helps to make sense of <laughs> the conditions in which we live. And so many of us have had the blessing of experiencing that for ourselves. So the method. Let me speed up. Jesus speaks in Matthew 5. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So we see two illustrations given, two pictures portrayed, one of salt and one of light. And salt within that culture was used in various ways. It was particularly used to help prevent the decay of meat. They didn't have refrigeration. And so they'd wrap their food in salt and bury it to keep it cool and to try and keep it fresh. And so we see a picture of the church in the world helping to prevent and to retard the onset of social decay. Helping to prevent and retard the onset of social decay. Which happens and always happens because it's a result of sin. And yet, it doesn't end with salt. It doesn't end with good works. But also, there's the necessary promotion of light. And so we see... The missional mandate is twofold. It's relational and revelational. It's relational in the way that we come alongside, we demonstrate our good works in relationship with others, demonstrating the love of God so as to be able to have some kind of positive effect on their life. Whilst using the opportunity to share the gospel and to bring a revelation as to the motive for our good works and the source of our good works. Now, one of the things I'd highlight in passing is that it's relational rather than relevant. There's been a lot of talk about relevancy. And the church being relevant. You know, you kind of hear talk, and I've heard it throughout the years. Christianity is cool. We just want to show them that we're cool. It's cool to be a Christian. 
Maybe they've never had no persecution. They've never had no trials or tribulation because that sure ain't cool. And so it's not really so much about being cool or trying to be relevant. When is the issue of death not relevant to anyone? It's relevant to everyone. 10 out of 10 people die. And so the focal point is really about being relational. The gospel is always relevant. But it is made accessible through relationships. And the reality is that if you look throughout the history of church mission, evangelism through means of a relationships, and I don't mean what people call relational evangelism today. They say, um, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. I don't subscribe to that because it is necessary. It tells us in Romans chapter 10, how will they hear if there's not a preacher? Faith comes by hearing and even the ability to hear comes by the word of God. And so there's a necessity for there to be revelation. But we can break down the method into three things. Do good works, preach good news, be a good bridge. Do good works, preach good news, be a good bridge. Three examples from the life of Christ. Jesus spoke in parables. In, Matthew, in Mark chapter 434, it says that <laughs> quite distinctly, he did not speak to them other than in parables. And he explained the parables to his followers. So you read a parable like the parable of the sower, and it's a story about farming. And without explanation that we're all privy to, it's just a story about farming. But Jesus was baiting the hearer. He was providing enough stimulation for their heart to be stirred. Such that they would draw near to him and be like, what did that really mean? What was that really about? And so Jesus didn't, cast his pearls before swine at the same time he made the, the message accessible and that was an act of judgment rather than smart strategy it was because they didn't want to hear plain truth you know what it's like you go into the canteen at college you take your bible out people start Screwface. Hmm. Who do they think they are? What did you do at the weekend? Oh, I went raving, you know. It was mad. Oh, yeah, I, I went to church. It was heavy. Church! The Bible says that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. The Christian life don't make no sense to the unbeliever. And so through means of parables, Jesus was able to help make accessible the message by stimulating the hearers, provoking sufficient interest 
for them to draw near and learn more. <clears throat> now, you'll notice in Mark chapter 4, that it goes on to talk about the fact that Jesus sought out some people and declared the need to repent. So it wasn't the fact that Jesus was trying to hide the message. But he was doing that which was necessary in order to meet the needs of the hearers. And on that point, he also met physical needs, often with no expectation of return. So sometimes we, we get geared up and we do homeless ministry and we go out and we meet some needs. And in our minds, we have an inbuilt expectation that someone's got to get saved. Someone's got to give their life to Christ. I mean, we're showing them this love and how can they not respond to that? It's not wrong to have that desire. It's not wrong to have that expectation. But the question is this. Would you still do it if you knew they wouldn't? Because Jesus did. In John chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000. The next day, they come to the lakeside. They realize he's on the other side. They get in boats and they make their way over to Jesus. Jesus see them, sees them and he's like, hmm. Don't labor for that which is just going to fulfill your temporal needs. You've just come for food. But I'm offering you something more. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And it says they found that to be a hard saying. And they turned and walked away, even to the point where the disciples looked at Jesus. And Jesus looked at them and he said, what, you gone to? And they was like, where can we go? You got the words of life. You see, Jesus knew that they only was into him for the food. Ray Comfort's got this... Um, well, how's it go? It's something like, in terms of methods of evangelism, buy the world lunch if you're hard-pressed to get opportunities to evangelize because everyone loves a free lunch. I'm hoping that we'll be able to get to the point one day maybe that we'll be able to do free food at family day. We won't be able to fit the people in the adventure But Jesus fed the people knowing, knowing that, you know what, that's all that they really wanted. And yet he'd done it anyway. Because among them, there would have been those that would have appreciated what he'd done on another level. Similar situation with the ten lepers. Jesus heals ten lepers. How many come back to give thanks? One. It's like a 10% hit rate. Jesus was accused and condemned by the scribes and Pharisees as being the friend of sinners. Because he ate and drank with the tax collectors and exceedingly wicked sinners. And you have to understand that when he would go and sit to eat with them, 
his sitting and eating with them wasn't just, you know, behind closed doors and quiet, you know, cheese and wine, a few dips. But those guys had parties, live music and dancing. And Jesus seen in that context, he was, he was tarred, guilty by association. Look at him, calls himself a rabbi, mixing it up with the ruffians. And yet we recognize that Jesus was entirely missional. Jesus was able to be there and be an influence without them being an influence upon him. And just as a, a note of caution, many use this as an excuse to say, yeah, it's all right to rave as a Christian. I'm just being a friend of sinners like Jesus. When really, you're not being missional and you're being entirely influenced. You're walking into that environment and you're being bombarded with sin. You lack substance and, un and are unable to walk straight when you come out. Psalm 1 does clearly say, Blessed is he who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Huh. That's, that's a psalm that everyone should memorize and commit to heart. Don't stand in the way of sinners and sit in the seat of the scornful. Keeping up company. As if you are of the same father. Because when we do that, we get ourselves into problems. And it's about being honest with ourselves and being able to recognize that, you know what? The majority of the time in those situations, we are being more influenced than we are influencing. And so we're to be wise and purposeful. Three examples of the relational, revelational method in the life of the Apostle Paul. I'd ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians 9.19. Paul clearly declared that he made himself to be all things to all men. That he might by all means save some. This is the hallmark of a missional life. Someone who doesn't just engage in evangelism once in a while, but who is committed on a daily and in a concerted way to be one who is accessible, who is able to make the gospel accessible to others. For though I am free from all men, verse 19 says, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. Notice he says he is a servant to all. And to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. 
that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might be, that I might by all means save some. Now one of the things I want to highlight as extremely important, you notice Paul didn't say, I became a Jew or I became lawless or I became weak. He said, I became as a Jew. I became as one who is not under the law. And so in the midst of his missional mandate, he did not lose sight of who he was. He was able to maintain distinctly his identity in and within himself. And what it meant was, as much as he became as one who was without law, he didn't behave in a lawless fashion. I've told stories about growing up in church and being condemned for looking worldly. Because I had a parting in my hair or... what I used to have. I did used to have hair, by the way. <laughs> and sometimes we, like Jesus said, we strain at gnats and swallow camels. Little mosquitoes, when it comes to our own lives, we can't. <laughs> and yet when we're looking at other people's lives, we're swallowing camels. That's wrong. How can you be eating that food how can you be listening to that music how can you be and we major on the minors and minor on the majors and so it's important that we within the sphere of who we are Paul wasn't talking about being a fraud it was within his capacity and the grace that God had given to him but he intentionally made himself relatable so as to be able to make the gospel accessible. Paul in Acts chapter 17 walked amongst the Greeks at Mars Hill. And in 1722, he sees an inscription to the unknown God among the many gods that they had worshipping there. And unlike some of us who would have got all high and mighty, look how idolatrous these people are. Wow, the Lord's going to blaze a fire on them. Rather, he used it as an opportunity to explain to them the unknown God who they worshipped. And so he took something of their religious experience and used it as a springboard to preach Christ. He also took something from their cultural experience. In verse 28 of Acts 17. And he quoted one of the Greek poets. For we are his offspring. And he stated the phrase without even clarifying where the phrase come from. 
who said it when it was said. Because everyone hearing it would have known. So it would be like someone from hip-hop culture hearing the phrase, only God can judge me. Now most of you ain't from hip-hop culture, so you ain't going to know who said that. But that's a, that's a two-pack, that's a classic two-pack statement. And as Paul interacted with the Gentiles at Mars Hill, he quoted from their own cultural reference, again, in order to build a bridge to find a, a, a piece of common ground from which he could preach Christ. And so we see those principles outworked there in the life of probably the two most prolific evangelistic missional individuals, obviously Christ, without a doubt. And yet Paul likewise I think he even said to the other apostles, I have labored more than you all. Now that would sound bright and cheeky. Bigging up his chest, I've labored more than you all if it weren't true. <laughs> and so, on to manna. That's not manna from heaven. But the manner in which you can take these principles and approach. And how have we taken these principles to heart and approached mission? How have we taken these principles to heart and approached outreach and our missional agenda? Well, before there was any South London, we were given to personal evangelism. Personal evangelism again, is probably the most effective way of outreach. I mean, you can have the biggest Christian events with the biggest Christian artists. And who are going to primarily be there? Christians. I mean, in all my years as a Christian, I've never really seen a multitude of unbelievers flocking to see some Christian artists they've never heard of. It don't matter how good they are. What really gets them to the events is their Christian friends inviting them along. And so any kind of strategic approach to mission is not a, an excuse to abandon personal evangelism. That ought to be our first priority. Walking with tracks. It should be a lifestyle. People back in the day was talking about Worship as a lifestyle, and it caused somewhat of a revolution. But evangelism is one of them things that ought to be a lifestyle for every believer. Some of us are not called to be evangelists, but we're all called to be witnesses. Passing out tracks, even if we're shy to talk, leaving them on the bus. I mean, I mentioned Ray Comfort, he... Um, Leads a ministry alongside Kirk Cameron. Um, some of you would have heard of him. Called Way of the Master. And I'm telling you the most absolute banging evangelistic resources. Christ-centered, 
Bible-based and effective. Where the master, the use of the law in evangelism. If you're unfamiliar with it, Google it, look it up, get their stuff. Personal evangelism. Can't stress that enough. Now for us, going from personal evangelism... We, by the grace of God, teamed up and it must be, I was trying to think about it as I was putting this together. 17 years ago, I think it was late 1993, we got together and really just with a heart and a passion to make the gospel known, to make the gospel accessible and... um. After a short time under a different name, <laughs> I ain't even going to tell you what it was. <laughs> Ardo Bread. <laughs> that, that was in the mix, but that weren't the name of the group. <laughs> we became Ministry of Defense, 1 Peter 3.15. Always be ready to give an answer when asked the reason for the hope that is within you, with meekness. And the word reason is apologesia in the, in the Greek. It's a legal term meaning to give a defense. And we used rap music. Before very many people, there's only a couple people in the UK doing it. I mean, there's only a few people in the States doing it. And we used rap music as a means of evangelism, as a, as a missional tool to get people's inter- attention and you, can't, you have to appreciate, we're talking like 17 years ago, right? So there weren't like no hope of getting signed because there was no one to get signed to. There wasn't even no hope of recording an album because there was no beats. There were, there, the tech, think about 17 years ago. Where was the technology then? Like, you know, the, the, the drum machine on the keyboard with nothing to record it. Four track, you know, four track tape. But it was, there was no other agenda. There was no other motive. There weren't no circuit or no kind of scene to get in on and get a name on. We was just in the prisons, in the schools, using our annual leave, taking our own time off work, working two jobs to buy the equipment so that we could get out there and make the gospel known. And the Lord done extraordinary things in our life. A lie, bro? When I tell you, up to this day, we haven't recorded an album. Now, that's a different matter. I'm glad GPA here because he would be <laughs> ready to beat us up. But when I tell you that without an album, <laughs> I almost said with one song. <laughs> Tim knows what I'm saying. The Lord took us around the world. Literally, round the world. America more times than could be counted. Different continents, no album. It was like, how did anyone ever hear about us? How did anyone ever know us? We hooked up with these guys from Philadelphia, who was one of the few East Coast groups 
that were doing Christian rap. And I mean, there were a few others, but the thing about these guys, they were Bible. It, was, it wasn't about the style. It wasn't about the culture. It, it was just Bible. And they had an album called Heaven's Mentality. The group was the cross movement. And we had it on tape. Cassette tape. It wasn't even chrome. For those who know about cassette tape. It was a normal, dusty, noisy tape. And right at the best bit in the song, you had to turn it over. And then rewind it back to the beginning. Before you could listen to the rest of the song. Know what I'm saying, Gamma? And even the auto-reverse. You still had to rewind it because the tape that I had, it wasn't taped properly. Out of sync. No smooth transitions. But we were encouraged and we got the tape just before meeting the group. And they came to England on a mission trip. And they went from, in fact, it was a UK trip. Because they went from Scotland, come right down. And it was just a divine appointment. We met those guys. And a short time after meeting them, they invited us to come and, um, to Philadelphia to record on what was the second album from their label, which was an album called Christology. And again, it didn't make sense to us. We're sitting on the plane thinking, we're going to America to rap. How twisted is that? The home of rap music. Like we know anything about rap. And yet the Lord has sat us on this plane. All expenses paid to go up to this big studio in Philly. And put down a couple 16 bar verses. It seemed like a long way to go. But it was the result of a kindred heart for the work and mission of God. No other agenda. There were no talk of contracts. Legal fees you know, lawyers and royalties and rare, rare. It was like, you guys are out for the Lord and you're keeping it Bible. And you know what? That's all we're about. So let's, let's support and encourage one another. And that was really, in many ways, what has led to us being here today. I mean, even back in the day, many of you won't know, but even Patrick was involved Hey, listen, he's going to surprise you with a, with a little revival of some old material. But you know, Patrick's too cool to rap, right? So he weren't really trying to rap. But he had some spoken word floatry, we called it. Whew, oh my gosh. So one day we're going to get him to dust off Psalm 1. And if you ever wondered why his email address is Psalm.1. Listen, there's a story behind that right there. And, oh, classic. We're going to pin him down and get him to do me. Listen, would, I don't, I don't, would you like to hear any of that? Listen. He's, he's ducked. I'm not even going to put him on the spot now. But badger him. Because that was foundational to our life in ministry. It was like, Lord, what can we use? What, can we, what is it that you've given us that we can take? I remember the first time we went to prison ministry. And I'm going to end here on the proviso that um, the brothers will let me come back next week. Because I'm only halfway through my message. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, 
Can that work, you reckon? All right, praise God. We went to Feltham. We went to Feltham, young offenders. And we didn't really know nothing about prison. I'd never been to prison. I told you, I was a coward when I was young. I didn't like anything to do with trouble. And so prison was the furthest thing from my experience. And I remember going to prison. It was me and Rob. And at that time, we were just literally starting out. And we had some friends called God's End Time Generation. Listen, we're schooling, you know. <laughs> so a family from Battersea of singers, R&B, absolutely off the chart. They were heavy. And they teamed up with us. They were going in. Brother called Mark. What was his like? Mark Griffiths. You know Mark Griffiths? You, you know him? Ah. And they brought us into Feltham. And at that time, we didn't really, we had two songs. And they gave us half an hour. <laughs> and it's not even like we had a band so that we could long out the songs. <laughs> it was a track. And when the three-minute track's finished, it's finished. But when I tell you, we didn't even think, we didn't even think twice about the fact that we had half an hour. Because as far as we were concerned, we were chomping at the bit for this opportunity to share the gospel with a captive audience. They can't walk away. They can't run nowhere. They've got to listen. And they were exactly the kind of people that we wanted to try and reach. And, um, Brev, do you remember? In Felton? I remember being in there. I was scared out of my... I was scared because it was tense in there. Like, we were sitting on this side, and I remember Robert was busted at one point, and I, it wasn't for fear, but it was just a sense of God being in this experience. And he, he had his head down after time in tears. And I remember sitting there thinking, there's going to be a prison riot any minute now. And I saw guys turning around, looking at next guys with phone cards. You remember the old green phone cards? And there's a guy like this on their neck. Ah, it's going to be war. And, and I'm sitting there thinking, and we haven't even got up to share yet. So imagine they don't like us. Start flinging chairs at us. And two twos, we look rolled already. So they confuse us with the inmates and just lock us all up. And I just remember standing there and the Lord, I mean, they had to take us off the stage with our two stones because we rinsed out the half an hour, like unrighteously. It, was, it wasn't actually good. <laughs> we learned some early lessons about finishing to time, at least musically. We're still trying to work on it preaching words. And we're going to do a song to finish, if that's all right. And... We'll come back and kind of finish the journey next week and look ahead. But, you know, there was something in that season of our lives that was essential to our formation as believers, as missional individuals, as ones who just sought to be used by God. There was a purity there. There was no other agenda. No other agenda. And we saw the Lord do strange and mighty things and we saw the Lord use it greatly whilst at the same time we received a lot of opposition because things aren't like how they are things weren't like how they are now there weren't no uprise and no 
next thing, 140E. And there were no MySpace and YouTube. There were none of that. And we were seen as some strange, ungodly guys. And yet, just based on the principles of Scripture, the principles that I shared this morning, we saw the Lord honor his word. Because that's all we sought to declare. And even in our writing, we just sought to communicate the gospel as effectively as we could. Pastor Rob, beg you come and help me, bro. <clears throat> and so we're encouraged. Patrick, the battery. Oh, yeah, this one's going. You want to use this mic? Take this, bro. I'm sure it will last a song, you know, bro. We were told we won't believe you, don't worry. Amen. Um, you want to introduce it? Um, this song is probably, it's definitely one of the oldest songs that we got. And it's probably one of the songs that we've done most often. It seems like whenever we go anywhere who, who know us, they always ask us to do this song, whether it's young people, kind of people our age back in the day, or much older people who wouldn't normally listen to rap, literally, uh, more times than I can count, people come up to us. I remember in California, one little old lady coming up to me and saying, oh, hi, um, I really don't like rap, but that song, The Revolver? You know what I mean? So it's like... Wherever we went, this song seemed to kind of epitomize MOD and really the message of the gospel in a powerful way. Um, you know, how we'd kind of introduce it is by basically talking about the fact that there are many names for Jesus. You know, he's the Rose of Sharon. Um, he's the um, Lion. He's also the Lamb of God. You know what I'm saying? But um, one of the terms that we've kind of coined for the Lord Jesus is the revolver. And um, the reason we chose that is because, you know, to revolve means to, to turn around. Like, you know, them doors, them revolving do doors you go in and you kind of come out the other way. Because they revolve. And just like um, a, a revolving doorway, the Lord turned our lives around. But then we were also able to use that, um, particularly in an environment like prison, and be able to say, you know what? The Lord can revolve your life around and move you away from... Um, particularly um, knowing that the climate hasn't really changed that much. It's just got worse. There ain't nothing new under the sun. True. You know what I mean? But back in them days, I remember a guy actually in prison telling me a story about how he got put in prison and it was Felton. Brother told me, stood up there and telling me, this after like we'd done the music and we had a chance to interact. Remember that time, bro? Yeah. Brother told me that he, he got done for emptying the clip in a brother. Literally emptied the clip. And he said he threw the gun away and the feds must have come and chased him and caught him. And somehow and the way they was able to tie him to the murder was powder dust from the gun was up his arm. You know what I mean? And um, revolver. Man's chatting about gun. Implement that is used to take man's life. We were able to say, you know what? Jesus is actually also the revolver, but he don't come to take life. He comes to what? He comes to he comes to give life. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And obviously, a gun back in them days was, you know, he had them them spinning barrel guns. I don't know, forty-five Colt or whatever it's called, revolver. And um, so, 
this song really kind of talks about Jesus and the fact that we got hit by a blast in the heart and it turned our lives around and it's all about Jesus the revolver now how many people have never seen us rap together just out of interest wow this might be the first and the last time <laughs> and you know we're old school so we're not trying to bring it like you know what I mean we're up there on the levels this is old school you know what I mean so we mentioned that I mean old school in a real sense because you know what check it we were around when BMXing skateboarding and breakdancing was invented true talk bruv why you have to go and tell them that so look so it's kind of like we're ancient. If you're born before the 60s, you're, you're prehistoric. Check it. The revolver hit me like a blast in the heart and he filled up all that I had in my soul. That's when my life started to revolve. I lost control when I took a hold of the revolver. He hit me like a blast in the heart and he filled up all that I had in my soul. That's when my life started to revolve. I lost control when I took a hold of the revolver. Eye contact gripped and transfixed stare. I felt naked, my soul was laid bare The surroundings disappeared, my life flashed before my eyes As I realised this would be my last night alive I knew deep down this is how it had to be I threw my hands up and shouted, here I am, come take me A high calibre projectile hit me, penetrated deeply Blew my mind like nitroglycerine It left no trace of its impact upon entry But I felt the implosion inside as it began to change me Strangely, I knew that I would die Revised my address and transferred to the other side It made no sense trying to hide or trying to fight The revolver fixed me firmly in his sights He held me back to rights I dropped to my knees, cried out, won't you save me please I killed over, I'd been hit by the revolver the revolver hit me like a blast in the heart and he filled the hole that I had in my soul That's when my life started to revolve I lost control when I took a hold of the revolver He hit me like a blast in the heart and he filled the hole that I had in my soul that's when my life started to revolve I lost control when I took a hold of the revolver yeah, I tried to duck from the buck Tried to find something to protect me But my conscience wouldn't let me I couldn't run far I hid behind a car He had some kind of sonar And yo, he tracked me like a radar And as the bullets start to splurt The only feeling of hurt was my pride It started to rip me up inside One to the head Two to the chest Made me confess all my sin And all the mess that I'd been living in And as I lay prostrate on my face I couldn't move Thinking I was dead Lying in pools of liquid red From head to toe I was soaked in a crimson cloak My life flashed before me But wait a minute It wasn't me bleeding I just couldn't understand It was the blood of another man The blood of the lamb No entry wounds or scars in it I knew the game was over And I'd been hit by the revolver The revolver Hit me like a blast in the heart And he filled up Hold that I had in my soul That's when my life started to revolve I lost control when I took a hold of the revolver He hit me like a blast in the heart And he filled the hole that I had in my soul That's when my life started to revolve I lost control when I took a hold of the revolver We got up and walked in reverse direction Left that intersection in the power of his resurrection Made ascension into the third dimension Where he eased my pain and relieved all of my tensions Dealt with my pretensions and all my apprehensions I have to mention He gave me peace past comprehension Of all my wrong deeds he made no retention Showed a grandpa 
plan for my life was his intention My people that saw me did not recognise me They said Strange, this brother's changed And that affirmed my new ID Cause when I spoke, it was his word I was talking As I walked the narrow path In his shadow I would stalk him I saw others fall him With lies, tried to distort him Instead of giving up, they was bigging up as they fought him And then we one round I saw him take down two other mans Understand, our destiny is in the hands of the revolver The revolver hit me like a blast in the heart And he filled the hole that I had in my soul That's when my life started to revolve I lost control when I took a hold of the revolver He hit me like a blast in the heart And he filled the hole that I had in my soul That's when my life started to revolve I lost control when I took a hold of the revolver God is gracious, man. So, we learn not to rely on the method, the means, or the manner, but to lie complete, rely completely on the grace of God. The power was not in the method, but in the message. Let's pray. We'll finish up next week. Dear Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have commissioned us into your service. And Lord, you have, like Moses, challenged us to use what is in our hand. Some of us have got life experience that's able to be applied in different ways. Some of us have got talents and gifts. Some of us have got aspirations that burn within us and they're there because you have placed them in us to use it for your glory. And so, Lord, as we consider mission, Lord, may we have a a wide horizon as we consider just the different ways in which you might use us in mission and that we're able to be missional individuals, Lord, about the mission of communicating the message of your gospel. Thank you, Lord, because your word is true and it's sure. And as we walk in it, we will see through. So bless us, Lord, this week as we go away in Jesus' name.